I'd like this, <clears throat> this evening to continue uh, from where I left off a couple of evenings ago on uh, practice here during a retreat, the daily life of a retreat, uh, building also on what Michael said last evening. I think we're moving in the same direction. Um, <clears throat> like to, in some cases, reinforce what's already been said and elaborate on it and tell you why. I've already said why, but why? Why so much? I make such a big fuss out of daily life. I would say uh, right now, uh, American or Western really, it's not just America, but let's say Western Dharma, modern Dharma, which is mainly in the West, not exclusively, uh, is largely a lay practice. There are still, of course, people becoming monastics, monks and nuns. Um, but right now, it could change. Right now, the energy seems to be very much overwhelmingly um, in the hands of lay people, being expressed by lay people, just ordinary people like ourselves uh, who have strong interests, sitting for months on end, doing all kinds of things that typically in Asia are reserved for monastics. Um, very, very different system for the most part over there. And I would say it's in its infancy what there is an attempt, what is happening is an unfolding of a genuine, if it goes well, a genuine lay practice. Uh, and if it goes well, I think it will need to have a, a real vitality all its own and a dignity all its own and not be uh, a car, trying to be a poor impersonation of monastic life, which won't work. It will be what all poor imitations are. Um, and so, why this uh, focus on daily life here? Uh, some of it is just, it's not revolutionary, it's just the teaching, to practice mindfulness all the time. But that can become de-emphasized and can become a cliché. Not a total cliché, but uh, the full validity of that kind of teaching, which comes from the Buddha, can be easily lost uh, and overshadowed by sitting, by formal practice in retreat places, which are wonderful. Uh, I do a lot of it. I'm here. I do my own practice. I teach. And uh, it's essential. Let me... Um, Hard to know where to start. I'm concerned about so many of you who are so new. Uh, some of this may seem a little remote. I hope not. Um, okay. Uh, in the history of the Dharma, 
uh, as the dharmas move from different cultures, from one culture to another, originating in India, as you probably know, of necessity, it's taken on, uh, it's changed its form, not necessarily its essence, to be effective in that culture. And so to be effective in a way when this teaching comes to a new culture, it has to be both conservative and radical at the same time. Conservative in that there's something precious to conserve. I mean, this is for people uh, who feel that, who think that, who know that. Uh, for me, it's, there's no question. It's something that needs to be conserved. But radical in the sense that if you're not willing to make it, introduce it in a way that's appropriate for a particular culture, you won't conserve it. And the errors, you can err in either direction. And uh, being one of those, along with the founders of, I, of, of IMS, uh, I've been too conservative, I've been too radical, and we're trying to find the right balance. Uh, if you're too conservative, then it becomes inappropriate or inaccessible to the culture that you're introducing it to. If it becomes a little too radical, you're, is, you're in danger of losing of not conserving the essence which is timeless, has nothing to do with any particular culture. That's the whole point. The essence of the Buddha's teaching is for humans. It's for all of us. That's why it can be as relevant thousands of years later. Indian culture, Korean culture, Japanese culture, Thai culture, Burmese culture, etc., American culture, German culture, British culture, that's all different. But... Uh, there's a, a core of the teaching that the whole point is it goes beyond culture. But you have to use culture to get there, and we're all members of a certain culture. Um, when it got to China, uh, there was influences in me, and this is not just me and my story. I hope that what I have to share with you can, seen, can be seen in a more general way. Um, when the teaching came from India to China, the Indians, I'm overgeneralizing and stereotyping, Indians, Indians at the time, much more otherworldly. Chinese, very earthbound, very worldly. And the monastics at that time didn't work. Uh, they were fed. In other words, they would go around with uh, begging bowls. It's not exactly, begging is not the right word. But uh, bowls collect food and lay people would happily support them, accumulating a virtue, merit. The real meditation is done by the monastics. The lay community supports things. And it got introduced into China, scholastically, and then also the practice. At a certain point, the Chinese uh, could not bear seeing these healthy, able-bodied men not doing any work. It just, it's very un-Chinese. And one uh, Chinese uh, master named Pei Chang, he he recognized this and he started something. He called it a day of no work is a day of no eating. And he put his monks to work. They grew their own food, etc. And that spread. Uh, In his 90th year, while just before he died, he was still doing work, and he was very old and frail, and it was uh, 
the monks hid his tools because they didn't want him to work. <laughs> and so he went out, he refused to eat. Uh, so th- that's one, uh, one approach. Uh, that spread, and that spirit is definitely in Korea and Japan. And that's where I trained first, before I came to Theravadan Buddhism. Uh, there's no question that manual labor and work, um, that goes on in Thailand as well. It's not like the monks do nothing. Uh, Michael and I trained at a, a forest monastery. You rake leaves. The meditation hall is... Uh, you keep it clean, with, you scrub it, uh, you uh, um, kind of wax it with coconut husks, and there's, all, there's a bit of work, but it's nothing like what goes on in Korea and China, certainly, and Japan. Uh, so I was in, in, uh, introduced to that. Uh, it's not alien. Now, that's just manual work. We haven't talked about some other things yet, just labor. So that was okay. Dogen, later on, got it from China. He developed it in his own way even further uh, in a, a very worthwhile teaching on his instructions to the cook. I encourage you to read it when you get home. Uh, he talks about the cook as a very high-class Dharma practice. And he describes, in a sense, it's cooking your life. This teaching, it's about how to take care of the rice and the water and where to put this, that, and the other, but it's also about how to live. It's on two levels. And a number of points are worth noting. One was um, wholeheartedly uh, to engage, cooks should wholeheartedly engage in the well-being of the community through their particular service, through cooking. And what he uh, tried to correct was the tendency of, let's say, the emperor was coming with a whole retinue of famous people and they had wonderful ingredients and the cooks would put out and produce a terrific meal uh, because it was a special group and they had lots of wonderful fresh ingredients. Next day, the emperor and his retinue is gone and it's just the same dreary monks. Just as much attention. You don't slacken off having to do with who you're cooking for. That's, that's your practice. Uh, and there are all kinds of subtleties like that. Uh, the, what was encouraged was tremendous, the quality of attention given to the preparation, cooking, everything that goes on in the kitchen, uh, no less than when you're in, in the meditation hall, and considered no less important. Uh, it's explicit. You can read it if you like. It's, you know, it's an old document. Uh, I found it very, very helpful, and it's still going on. That spirit is still carried on. Um, Korean approach. I spent a year in a Korean monastery, and they have an attitude. You know, when we talk about the Sangha, the community of practitioners, is usually uh, peaches and cream. You know, we're all a bunch of nice people, and we're supporting each other practicing. They had a somewhat more realistic uh, view of it. That is, they say, if you want to peel a bunch of potatoes, you can peel each potato one at a time. That's the slow way. The other way is you throw a bunch of potatoes in a basket, and you just shake them vigorously, and they rub up against each other, and they peel each other. (laughs) You get my drift? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, we don't live here. We're just, we're guests for seven days. 
and the people who live here be more akin to that, uh, where there's full connections, where people talk and get to know each other and do things together and so forth. But even so, and I, I will go into, there is, a, there is a relationship life here. And I got at it a little bit yesterday, and Michael got at it as well. And so uh, it's not certainly overwhelmingly the contribution of the Sangha support. Whereas we're all rowing in the same direction. We're all helping each other just by being here. And if you go to some of these monasteries, there's tremendous appreciation of that. Uh, in some of them, they'll bow uh, to each other rather than the Buddha. At the end of a sitting, uh, they're bowing to each other, not sometimes to the Buddha, to each other. Uh, one place I practice in, in Japan, Japanese are very ceremonial. Uh, they were bowing to the cushion. Uh, and in this particular, uh, well, at, at first I thought it strange, but now I'm, I got used to it. But then there was one uh, retreat where uh, I guess it was the tradition in that monastery, uh, bowing, you could bow to anything, showing, realizing, for example, why do you bow to a cushion? Or it might be a bench or a chair. Because everything plays has a part to play in helping you awaken and become free. The cushion helps you to sit more comfortably, to sit up more stably, and so forth. I saw a monk bow to the toilet. We're back there again. Okay. And at first, it really struck me as strange. You know. And then I realized, this is a little bit indiscreet, but uh, it's quite correct. Look, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> If we gave you the instructions the first evening, thorough, warm, everything, maybe a few handouts, and then Michael and I left for the week, and then we came back and checked in how you're doing, you'd be a little irritated, but you could get something done. But if there was no toilet paper? (laughs) Hysteria. The retreat would completely fall apart. You would be furious. You want your money back. Many would leave. Some would improvise. Okay. So you see what I'm getting at. So it's a, it, it's a cultivate a gratitude to the smallest thing. It's a, actually a very, very beautiful. It's not that you have to formally do it. Uh, it, it starts to come of its own as you, as you practice and realize what uh, the staff and uh, everyone here, uh, we all have yogi jobs. You're not alone. This is my yogi job. You know, Michael, you know, this is our yogi job. The staff obviously have a yogi job, and you clearly have one. But finally, we all have just one yogi job, and that's to be a yogi, independent of the particular form that it takes. And here I'd like to um, suggest some misunderstandings that I I want to avoid uh, in the past have come up sometimes. Uh, In emphasizing the importance of daily life, that is one justification for us harping on it, or encouraging you to really keep that quality of attention uh, alive and cooking uh, while in, the, in the full round of things that go on here, from the moment you wake up until you go to sleep. Nothing trivial. Granted, we fall asleep most of the time. I understand that. So what? As soon as you notice it, you once again, gently, not in a grim way, in a playful way, once again you start to notice what you're doing and seeing, seeing if you could do it wholeheartedly. That can be, and sometimes is misunderstood as that I'm saying a monastic life 
uh, suffers from this, that they don't have enough daily life. I'm not saying that. Actually, what I'm suggesting is formless. If you're a hermit, then really do being a hermit 100%. Really do hermit. If you're a monastic and celibate and you don't handle money and you only have one meal a day, I've lived in, in places like, in monasteries like that. There are definitely monks who live that way and they're, they're doing it. They're quite content and happy. There are others who are not. We know what happened in the Catholic Church. We know that being celibate is not a piece of cake and that it often can get twisted. It twists you can be burning inside and do all kinds of things that are, are cruel and, and harmful and painful. What I'm trying to say is to do the monastic trip right doesn't mean that you have to have a wife and ten children and a car uh, because that will test you to see if you're really doing the practice. I'm not saying that. And it changes in, during different times of life. The priorities change. Let's say the, re- the relative contribution of formal sitting and walking or formal retreats to just practicing in daily life. If a crisis comes up, I've had a few in my life, there was no time to sit. That doesn't mean there's no time to practice. The practice, remember, life is prior to any of these forms. The sitting, walking form and the retreat form is a magnificent one. But what I discovered is that in the early days of IMS, when I'd come off retreat, um, we all, many of us, uh, loved doing these little like three-month retreats and even longer. And it was wonderful and invaluable. And then I started to get to see and get to know many of my fellow practitioners. And I could see that they hadn't begun to learn how to live the rest of their life. And in a sense, uh, you would do a three-month retreat and a number of them, uh, and then they would become resume items. That, you know, three-month retreat in 1972, so like combat ribbons that soldiers wear. And a lot of the uh, conversations would be about what to do to earn some money to get back to the next three-month retreat. In the meantime, nine months went by. What was happening there? I saw a lot of not such good living. It's sort of like not uh, taking on things that needed to be taken on by, by the person themselves. It's not that I feel everyone has to get married, everyone has to have children, everyone has to have a job. It's what you want. So... Live it, doing this practice fully, you could do it single. You could do it with or without children. You could be a, a Wall Street broker, a hermit. That's not the point. But whatever your practice is, whatever your life is made up of, you have to learn how to do it. Otherwise, I don't think it'll work. The monastics have had a lot of practice. They've been doing it for a few thousand years. If we're to have a vital lay practice, which obviously much of that is spent off the cushion, then clearly we have to learn how to do that. And so in suggesting that in small ways, because I understand the challenges here are in no way comparable to what we face when we leave here in terms of relationship, work, uh, all of it, granted. But there are some things, some basics that can be learned here precisely because it's a bit easier, a kinder environment, slower. Uh, You have not exactly the luxury, because I think this is urgent. You have the time and the encouragement and the culture, culture of mindfulness. It's Michael's term. Go ahead. 
give him credit. I think it's, I think it's a very beautiful term, yeah. uh, which is created here, and everyone who comes in here little by little partakes of that culture and maybe brings a little, little bit of it home. Um, if we don't learn how to take care of our life, uh, if you have a family, then you have to do that. If you don't, then you don't have to. So I'm not specifying. Here's why I say it. There are a number of people I, who trained in Asia, some were monks, and at about the same time I did. And then we came back, and then a number of them disrobed. And first, the monastic trip's the only way. That's it. Great, okay. Uh, then as soon as they disrobed and got married, and maybe had a child or two, uh, the real test of life is if you have some children. Uh, I thought it's going to Thailand and being a monk and you know just wandering, having one meal a day. No, the test is if you have a couple of children. If you have three children, three live-in masters. Well, three live-in Zen masters. Okay. Uh, only if there's a Zen student. In other words, that that uh, that it's a challenge to bring up children, of course. But if you uh, that you don't get your own way. That the ch- we all know what that's about. Okay, uh, but if the person's willing, willing to do what? To face themselves. What children bring up in you? And here's where I'd like to shift over to IMS to our our ordinary work life here. Uh, when we were describing, let's say, your yogi job and to do it wholeheartedly, and as well as all the other activities, dressing, eating, when you do your yoga, do it mindfully, uh, late night sitting, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But let's say we talked uh, more about your yogi job. Uh, it's an important aspect of a retreat to keep the retreat going. Uh, that has many levels, and we're talking about self-knowledge, self-knowing, if you recall. Uh, and I can see where some people might say, well, that sounds nice, but... What is it? Vocational guidance counseling or, you know, uh, efficiency training so that we're, what, happy, effective workers when we go home or uh, maybe better adjusted or, you know, I don't know if if any of you are old enough, although you can still see them, uh, these posters from the Soviet Union, happy peasants in their tractors, you know, just handsome and beautiful and with glowing children and modern beautiful tractors in their peasant outfits, Ukrainian and Latvian, you know, and they're just so happy to be working and be part of the Soviet Union. Uh, but we know what the reality was. There was nothing like that. It's not what I'm, what's being suggested. It is, though, being suggested that if you, look, you may, perhaps many of you, if not most of you, don't get a yogi job that you particularly like. Maybe it's boring or it's unfair. I've gotten that criticism back. I'm, especially in the summertime. I'm working in the washing of dishes, and you know, people are sweating. It's like a galley slaves, you know. Uh, and my friend has a yogi job. It, what, it's three seconds, he just brushes off something, and then, and then he's often has a nice walk in the sunshine around the loop. Uh, I said, Well, that's your practice. He said, No one home. All right. Uh, so I'm, it's, it's about, um, so a lot goes on when we work. Uh, giving yourself wholeheartedly, learning how to do that, how to be awake, attentive to something that maybe 
if it's boring, then you have to deal with that. If it's something that is you feel is beneath you, I pointed one out yesterday, the oral surgeon, then you have to work with that. Uh, if it's too taxing and it's not a medical condition, you have to work with that or whatever it is. Now, if you can learn how to stay a little bit more awake when you get home, if you have a job, you might be able to reinvigorate your job. Since many of us have jobs we don't particularly love, but we have to earn a living. It's just true, I'm, I'm, isn't it? Okay, and even if you do love your job, uh, do you know how many times uh, Michael and I, well, I'll tell you, I, I'll speak for myself, how many hundreds of thousands of times I've given the breath awareness instructions? Allow the breath flow naturally, just let it in breath. You know, you know. For all I know, it's a million. I don't know. You know how many times I've heard people say, well, my back hurts, and you know, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I have to work too. Yeah. I have to work on myself. You think it's a piece of cake? Okay. Uh, so there are ways that sometimes, and I've seen it done, uh, people can come to a job, maybe temporarily or in a job they really don't like, or with a, an employer or a boss, who's, but they have to be there because they have uh, bills to pay and so forth. You can learn how to work with what comes up. Having started here, or at CIMC, where it's an important part of CIMC, uh, not to neglect that. That's why we started CIMC, because I saw that people would come off retreats and then be somewhat lost. Those who were going to live in the world, if you want to stay here, that's different, who were going to live in the world, had not uh, faced, really, or even knew how to face work, love, relationship, school, whatever it is that makes up life for most of us. And so we, the center is an attempt to keep the practice alive in a city, right in the midst of everyone's ordinary life, and also tightly linked up with IMS. It's one and Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and now the Forest Refuge. It's a, we call it the floating campus. So that it's uh, an attempt to help, help us all find our own way, and no one's practice is the same. Some will do more sitting, some will do less sitting, and so forth. Um, but let me go through a number of, of, of uh, levels of, first of all, of self-knowledge, there were a number of questions in the group which were excellent. One saying, well, I don't know, self-knowledge for me, that's mainly psychological. I learn about myself. Uh, how can you not learn about just your ordinary self, your likes, your dislikes, your apprehension, your nervousness, your, uh, I can't go here, I can go there, your preferences? Of course that comes up. And that is something that one learned can be of benefit. There's another kind of knowledge that goes, we're now moving closer to Dharma knowledge. And that is, for example, the law of impermanence. If you've read or heard anything about the Buddhist teaching, you know that that is central. Uh, everything keeps changing and in uncertain ways, and we become fixated. And so much suffering comes about because we're not in step with a changing world, a world that changes not necessarily according to the way we'd like it to. 
seems like life insists on being exactly the way it is all the time. And we have notions about how it should be. Sometimes we get our way. But uh, have you noticed? Not always. Good. The quiet, you said it a lot with just your silence. Okay, so um, that gets closer, the kind of knowing you start to see Dharma principles, but you learn it firsthand in yourself. Let me give you an obvious one. Have you, have you suffered at all while you've been here? Of course you have. And I don't mean a pain in the body. That's when I'm us- the suffering I'm using now is mental, psychological, emotional affliction. Uh, uh, it can be torment. Uh, it can be around food. People love the food, and they don't love the food. I mean, this is every retreat. I see the cook here. I got a little bit self-conscious. Sorry, Jen. I love you. I love your cooking. <laughs> she knows it's true. Yeah. Okay. Um, those are preferences. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. How could everyone love uh, the same food? It's not possible. Okay. But then, if you attach to the food, you attach to it because. Uh, you want it to be a certain way. It's either it's not seasoned enough or it's too seasoned or it's, uh, there are no, no meat, fish, and chicken or whatever it is. There's always something that for some people. And we do our best. We have special needs, but that's a little paltry. I mean, how much, how much gratification can we get from so you have brown rice instead of noodles? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not a huge leap into, you know, dietary ecstasy. Okay. So, uh, but if you if you start if you take the teaching, you begin to see. Granted, they don't have the food here that I like. It's not going to be the way I am, and I'm going to be living here for seven days. And if the mind keeps hammering away at that, there'll be torment. And the Dharma then is in the food. Is more than nourishment in it. If you're willing to learn from it what you begin to see is that this can't change. This is the way food is here. You need nourishment, and the mind has a mind of its own, and it insists on having the food that it wants. And it's not going to get it. And as we know, minds can persist and go around and round and round. That's not wisdom. In other words, having the preference is fine. Clinging to it, attaching to it, uh, that's suffering. And that we're talking about the first and second noble truths. So any, time, any kind of uh, clinging to a preference brings suffering. It's a law, whether it's here or on the, well, I don't know about on the moon. But it, it, it's law. And as you begin to see some of your suffering here, because you have the time to do that, and we're constantly reminding you, and you can talk about it with us, you begin to see the Buddhist teachings uh, express themselves in, in living, in actual living, notice Sheng Yen's statement that, that I posted. He's talking about dharma is not separate from living. It's not life. I like the, that, in fact, he used the verb. It's living. Because self-knowledge, in the sense used here, uh, and uh, dharma practice are in the active present. It's not life in some abstract. It's in the active present. It's what is happening right now. That's where the learning is going on. That's what's being asked of us. That's where the suffering is going on. That's where the liberation comes. 
right here in the living present, the active present. And so the things that go on here go on elsewhere, but here we have uh, a unique environment. This culture is encouraging us to learn from our experience. If you don't do it, then you can't blame anyone. We really are encouraging you to make everything that happens here yours. So you begin to see Dharma principles express themselves and your understanding of the Buddhist teaching is much more real. That's going deeper. We're moving beyond the psychological now a bit. But now I'm going to go to, to what can happen, how work can be used and has been used in, in, uh, in this tradition going back a long time that maybe uh, especially new people seem well beyond what you came here for or what you can imagine, it just seems remote or even foolish or fantasy. Uh, the truth is that if you're wholeheartedly practicing, uh, you can go into very, very extraordinary and uh, depth. Uh, because uh, let me link up uh, what I'm trying to say here with what the Buddha had to say as the core of his teaching. Uh, and maybe we'll, if I can, tie it up here, and that, that can be enough for this evening. When pressed one time, the Buddha was, gave a very brief, uh, in other words, concise, what is the essence of the teaching? He's done it in different ways in different times, but in this, this occasion he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing slightly, don't attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine, or it's selfing. We make self out of things. We appropriate them. We cl- everything is personalized. Every, the world, our, our experience is all egocentric. It's as if the entire p- world is organized for us. It isn't. The mind, as you look at it more closely, it's unfolding in an impersonal way. You've heard sounds, chirp, chirp, machines. You can't control them. Well, can you control your mind? It's not so different. That's nature. Your body... Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to nature. It has lawfulness. You can care for it, and you can care for your mind, too. That's what we're learning how to do. And yet there's a lawfulness. Dharma, one meaning of dharma, rather important meaning, is natural law. It's the truth of universe, how things happen. In that sense, it's akin to science, but it's more of an inner science. Uh, So... uh, if that's so, now let's move to relationship. And uh, I don't have a whole lot of time left, but this isn't just myself. I know Michael and I have talked about it and others have. The missing piece for lay practitioners, for example, when I look back at my Zen experience in Korea, Japan, it was, uh, there was no access to China. Um, Definitely work was emphasized, but what it was mainly was manual labor. Relationship just as screwed up as anyone else. In other words, somehow the precepts designed to protect us from lying, stealing, killing, misuse of sexual energy, etc. Very important, but uh, somehow or another, it is possible to go deeply in your sitting practice through lots of retreats, and this is not theoretical, and for your relationship life to be completely screwed up. It is not unusual. I know this from the inside, and some of you do. I I know some of you. 
For example, many so-called masters from Japan came over here who had, who had mastered Zen master, who had mastered there are three main koan collections. They're sort of like uh, a curriculum you move through. And they've mastered all three, which enables them to be a master, and some teacher gave, you know, certified them. And it's, it's an accomplishment. Koans are, what is the sound of one hand clapping? There are all kinds of them. They challenge the mind using thought to go beyond thought. Great. These, and these are, many of them, the ones I studied with were lovely uh, people. They were all men. Uh, except there was one koan they didn't master over there, actually two. One was the lady koan, and the other was the money koan, which they flunked once they got here. Lots of money and lots of ladies, and they didn't know what to do with it. It was like a child in a, you know, uh, in a toy store. You know, suddenly, yes, Johnny, Janie, you can have whatever you want. And there's been a lot of suffering, I think, most of you know this, or some of you know this. How is it possible? I have a good friend. You won't know him. He's not a Vipassana practitioner uh, with tremendous depth in his practice. We've done retreats together. We started out together. I know him for 30 years. Incredibly sincere. Has done rigorous retreats in mountains with, you know, in the snow, uh, diets of just rice and dried fruit. And, and he is fearless, able to do that. And then sitting on the opposite end of the table with his wife, a babbling idiot. <laughs> how could that be? Okay, so we talked it over. We said, like, how could it, you know, you have such extraordinary depth. And I'm not exaggerating. And then he, there was a, a period of honesty where we, he wanted to know as well. Because uh, he was, I, I don't want to say too much because some of you might figure out who it is. And I'm not interested in personality uh, assassination at all. It's more in the service of learning for us. And out of his pain, what he saw was uh, that when he's practicing in the mountains, doing uh, you know, months of arduous sitting and walking, minimal diet, cold and all that, uh, he has extraordinary conviction. And, a, and as we've pushed a kind of heroic archetype, you know, all the countless yogis who've sat, you know, eating just one leaf, you know, or in a cave, or, and then they attain enlightenment. And, you know, some of it may be mythological, but there's certainly some truth to it. And when it comes to relationship, particularly with women, um, there isn't that same conviction or value of it, and also fear, and an unwillingness to learn, to work with, to learn from what relationship brings up. What I'm suggesting now is not couples counseling, which is useful, and many of us need it, and it can be helpful. No, I, I'm, you know that it can be helpful. Uh, Dharma teaching uh, can apply to relationship as well. There's no, why not? Now, when you're in a relationship to anyone, it's not just someone intimate. Um, it's a mirror. It shows you a lot about yourself if you're willing to look. And it reveals the ways of the self big time. Look, I've sat for months and felt completely cleaned out, pure, back in Harvard Square. I live in Cambridge. And within a week, uh, you know, I could see stuff pouring out in relationship that, where did that come from? I sat, shouldn't it all be gone? I sat uh, conscientiously for three months. Well, uh, it should be gone, but it isn't. 
okay, well, maybe I need to sit longer. Maybe I need to sit, you know, more retreats. Maybe I have to eat less. Maybe I have to put on a different outfit. Maybe I have to shave my hair. Maybe I have to tell me what to do. I'll do it. How about looking at relationship itself? But from a Dharma point of view, seeing attachment, seeing selfing, that is, it, it, in my experience, nothing brings out self like a relationship. Me, you did this to me. I, I, I and you and me and we, and I thought we were a we, and now I feel like I'm an I. And, you know, after all I did for you, and now what you're doing to me. And, okay. Uh, maybe that's why we don't want to look at it. Because it is difficult. Now, I was just reading about Dutanga, the Dutanga practice in the Thai forest tradition. And Dutanga means difficult practice. What it means is you go off into the forest, the jungle, whatever, and you, you live, uh, it's very ascetic. The Buddha allowed a certain kinds of asceticism that way. And, and I've studied, some of my teachers have done it. There's no question that it can be dangerous. It's certainly difficult. And a lot of, when you read, I was reading the other day, all that, why it's so difficult, 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 and I put relationship next to it. You know, like, difficult, 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 <laughs> same, isn't it? This is our dutanga, you know, but you have to be willing to take it on. My own feeling is we have no choice. If we want a genuine lay practice, then it's not that everyone has to be in a relationship. If you're not in one, are you happy not being in one? If you are, terrific. The proof of the pudding's in the eating. Everyone has that cliche wrong. Everyone says the proof of the proof is in the pudding. The original I'm a master of cliches and trivia. <laughs> uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, you have to eat it. And you can have a nice theory. Well, how is your life? And Dharma practice is, is not about fantasy. It's about taking a look. And so here, granted, no one is having a relationship, right? Except the fantasy one. In one group, we found out there were three people who were having Vipassana romances in their head. One would even with two, with two women. You know, okay. The people were honest. It was very, it was amusing, but it was also informative. Um, look, you know what goes on here. It's those potatoes being rubbed together in the Korean, you know, so you have reactions. You don't like this one, you like that one. He's terrific, she's wonderful. Oh, look, you know, I can't wait till the end of the retreat. We'll uh, I'll kind of uh, sashay over there and, you know, talk about Dharma and then, <laughs> then we'll sashay off together. Uh, usually it doesn't happen, sorry. Um, so whatever you're doing all day long, there's a reaction. I don't mean that it's a major one because you're not in any kind of full-blown relationships here. But something comes up. See if you can use the time here, which is so uh, ideal for practice of this sort, to start to become a lot more sensitive to reactivity, to what, it's not just with relationship, what brings up what for you? For example, if you remember our friend, the oral surgeon from yesterday, what really was the most valuable part of the retreat for him, what freed him a bit more, was the toilet. It wasn't even a person. 
because cleaning up the toilet produced reactions in him. He saw what, what, uh, why he didn't want to do it. And to his credit, he had the maturity and the courage to really see that he needed to be there because it showed him a lot that went way beyond toilet. But mainly I'm talking about people. As we start to, we can learn from each other so that when you go home, it's not such an alien thing. Uh, and often, this will be the, the last thing that I, I'd like to say is that I think what's required is a different attitude. Uh, this has happened to me. Let me give you a, a one example of it, but it's happened more than once. Uh, a Dharma teacher uh, came to visit CIMC, which is an urban meditation center, which is attempting to um, really put into effect what, what we're talking about here. And without throwing out the contemplative part, which we all love and, and value, sitting, walking, IMS, or wherever, that's not uh, passe. It's as valuable as ever, maybe more so. But what we are saying is, can a center in an urban area help you, remind you, and in all kinds of ways, understand that your life with a family or without, with a job or without, in school or not, whatever that is, that those are rich materials to practice with. Okay, so this person came, and he wanted to know, well, how do you do things? Because he was going to start a center somewhere else in the country. Uh, And I told him all the things, and he read our brochure. And then I said, we have two kinds of interviews. One is that comes up in a retreat, and they're relatively more brief, and they have to do with what's going on happening on the retreat, much as we're doing here. And then we have other interviews, which are about a half an hour, uh, which people can sign up for, and that's not on a retreat. And we may wind up talking about their sitting practice, but not necessarily. Uh, We uh, will talk, it might be about their family or about work, wherever there seems to need some where can uh, a need for the practice to be of some help? How, do you, how could the practice help me with this? And this person said, oh, well, why do you have to use a half an hour? That's just counseling and therapy. Or why can't they just go and go into therapy? I said, no, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. When I listen to a person talk about their family or their work or their school situation or relationship or absence of it, uh, I'm listening from a Dharma perspective, the same principles that we use all the time apply to everything. It's not like Dharma is only in this hall. That makes no sense. It's life. It's everywhere. Okay. And so I couldn't convince him of that. He just felt it seems too long. He said, uh, it's, a new, it's a challenge to help people think in a somewhat different way because we're, we are used to thinking exclusively just how to fix up our egos. This is not about how to fix up the ego, although on the way that may be necessary, and usually is. Uh, it's how to see what's happening is showing you how egocentric you are or showing you how tyrannized you are by unexamined fear or you have to face your loneliness or it's time to quit that job or it's time to take that offer, don't be afraid of it or whatever it is. And... Uh, it's 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 very integral part of Dharma practice. I hope you see, at least get a little bit of a hint of that. Um, that way, the pra- a lay practice can ha- be full and can have some vitality. Uh, if if it's if it's eviscerated, if we think that practice 
is just in special places, special times, special forms, as precious as that is, uh, I think you may be in for a disappointment, those of you who are new. Um, I've seen enough now. I don't think it's uh, speculation. And so, and it's not bad news. It's actually because the whole human race needs to learn how to relate. It's not just lay people, for goodness sakes. Just look at the world. We don't know how to live together. It would be very, very good if we saw that that is the highest priority, to understand ourselves, not in a vacuum or as an isolated atom or some static notion, but in the active present, 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 and in the presence of others, learning. So the relationship becomes vital as part of our practice, not to negate the sitting, not at all. When you can sit, by all means do it, but much of your life will be spent elsewhere.